Welcome to Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears. Unfortunately, the European heatwave has finally done for Federico's audio setup, which is lying in a puddle of molten metal somewhere in the south of Italy, so I'm going to be running the show alone this week. The idea for this show came up when Federico and I were sharing phone home screens, and Federico was quite surprised about the number of Google properties that appeared in my home screen. The proximate reason for this, of course, is that my school, as in many schools, use G Suite as our backend service for all of our administrative work in the school, and yet we use iOS as our common platform, so we end up using a lot of Google's iOS apps. Google provides a whole suite of services and apps for iOS, but how good are they really, and what's it like to try and live a quote-unquote Google lifestyle on iOS? Well, firstly, an overall comment that everything Google, or Microsoft for that matter, does is hobbled by iOS's inability to specify default apps. So many of Google's properties, such as Assistant, Gmail, Chrome, Maps, and so on, are all unable to be the one thing for iOS because Apple wants their variants in there. And I think that really has a major impact on the the kind of lifestyle you can live and how integrated it can be when you're working with Google products on iOS. Secondly, all of Google's apps on iOS implement Google's own user interface standards called material design. Now, this is what you see in Android apps when you see things like a a button that indicates more as three stacked dots or a large circle with a plus in it in the lower corner of your app. Those are cues that are coming from Google's material design interface. Now, some people might find this a major stumbling block, but I really think it's fine. It can be a bit weird though. There are some times where you see things like a left pointing back button, that you hit the button and the screen dismisses downwards rather than uh, left to right. So you do see some odd corners like that sometimes. But in general, material design is perfectly usable, uh, even if it can be a little bit jarring on iOS. But I would sort of argue that the the era of very standardized, very consistent iOS apps has been long, long gone. And I think we're into a world not unlike the web, where most properties you go to, you end up using a reasonably different kind of user interface each time you go there. So I thought what I'd do today is just take a walk through some of the apps that I use and also some of the ones I don't use and sort of explain maybe why I don't use those ones as well. Let's kick off with Google Chrome. Google Chrome on iOS is a web browser. It's not particularly sophisticated. It's not particularly different from Safari either. Now, of course, the user interface is different, but Apple maintains a rule in iOS that only Apple's own WebKit rendering interface rendering engine can be used on iOS. That means that in terms of drawing the web page part of the whole process, Google Chrome and Safari are effectively identical. Safari does get some performance benefits because it's privileged in certain ways uh, to run certain faster JavaScript engines and so on. But in general, Google Chrome is just an alternative web browser. But again, as I said earlier, you can't make Google Chrome your number one browser on iOS. So whenever you hit a link in an app, it's going to launch Safari. That's perhaps the main reason why I don't use Chrome as my number one browser on iOS. However, if you do use Chrome on a desktop computer, you can sign into your Google account on Chrome and iOS, and you can sync things like bookmarks, and also open tabs can be synced in between mobile and desktop in the same way that iCloud tabs does on between Safari instances on Mac and iOS as well. 
That is perhaps one of the main advantages for using Chrome and iOS. Uh, but one of the things that I use on my desktop computer at work quite a lot is uh, user profiles on Chrome. Now this is a life-saving feature on the desktop when, when you're working with, uh, as many people do, a work Google account and a personal Google account. What you can do is you can actually have different themes and you can have different uh, instances of the browser where the, the personal one, for example, has all your personal cookies. I'm logged into my personal account on YouTube. I'm logged into my personal Amazon account. And if my browser has, in my case, a blue bar at the top, that's the theme I've chosen, I can use all my own services. And then the red bar at the top is work. So I find that very, very useful when I'm working in school. Uh, but that that feature isn't available on iOS. So it's something that um, you can be signed into only one account at one time in Chrome on iOS. So that is another limitation there too. But Chrome and iOS are perfectly good browsers, There's nothing wrong with it. But I think the, the thing that holds it back as, and I think I'm going to be seeing this quite a lot tonight, is that you can't make it your default browser on iOS. Now some apps and Google's apps in particular, because obviously Google's trying to build uh, the Google ecosystem inside the larger iOS ecosystem. Google apps will let you choose your default browser so that if you tap on a link and see the Gmail app on iOS, that will take you to uh, Chrome. Same thing happens with uh, uh, if you're in Google on the web, Safari or Chrome, and you hit a Maps link, you'll be taken immediately to the Google Maps application. So Google is trying to make that work uh, in large part, but if you're in other apps, say in Tweetbot or Twitter or something like that, you won't get that same experience. So it can be a little bit jarring because iOS doesn't let you have default apps. Now, another, another situation where this is also true is in the case of email. And uh, Gmail is, you know, many people's uh, email service of choice, both in businesses, G Suite and so on, but also personally. And the Gmail app on iOS has gotten better over the years, I would say. Uh, it had in early days been quite unlike a normal iOS app, but in more, many more recent versions, it's actually gotten quite good. And there's a couple of very compelling reasons to use the Gmail app on iOS over mail with a Gmail account in the back end. And the number one reason is that the Gmail app on iOS supports full Gmail style search of all your email. Now, Apple's mail program, I don't find there's anything wrong with it on iOS. It's, a, it's a, one of my kind of favorite iOS apps in a sense because it's so, it's so clean and simple to use. But it has always, always, always struggled with searching the full corpus of all your email documents. And that's something that you know, increasingly, as a lot of our information is being held inside our email clients, that's really, really important. Uh, so even if you were to perhaps use mail for your normal day-to-day, -day, clearing your inbox, composing, replying, and so on, it, I believe it does actually pay to have the Gmail app installed anyway. Maybe turn the notifications off because you don't want two notifications for every email, one is bad enough. But if you were to have that installed, you would always have an easy way to do a full email search from any mobile device you were on. A couple of other things that have recently come to the Gmail app. One is Smart Reply, which is something that I was quite, not cynical about, but thought, you know, who, who would ever use this feature? And uh, now that I'm kind of busy and doing management type jobs, 
I'm the guy who uses that feature all the time, which is this thing called Smart Reply, where, uh, and this is kind of like the way replies work to text messages on the Apple Watch, where it parses the incoming message and it tries to extract possible replies you might want to make. And sometimes it gets the tone of voice right and sometimes it doesn't. I'm not sure if it's actually learning the way you write emails or not, but sometimes it can be a little too abrupt for my liking, but sometimes it'll at least give you the, the kernel of a starting email and you can hit this button and it will pre-fill a reply for you with that text and then you can continue if you want to. And that that is a very helpful feature and now that's available on the Gmail app for iOS as well. You can also do things like you can work with labels and stars and so on, uh, and all the labels that you would apply to things in Gmail, you can work with them on the on the iOS app as well. Now, one of the limitations of the Gmail app, as opposed to say the Apple Mail app, is that the Gmail app does not support what's called a unified inbox. Uh, and if you have multiple Gmail accounts installed, you will see uh, an aggregate unread email account on the icon for example but you'd then have to go into your work email and your home email and you would have to uh, individually clear those inboxes so there's no one view of all the emails you've got but that's just the way it is on gmail one last thing that you can do with gmail on ios is you can actually use it as a two-factor authentication token if you like for your google account uh, and it's only the Gmail app that supports this. This is not a feature of all Google apps on iOS. But for example, in my work email, I'm signed into Gmail on my phone. And if I were to log into that account on any computer anywhere in the world, instead of being asked to enter a two-factor code or being asked to uh, receive a text message, what I would do is, or what it says on the screen is, uh, we've sent a message to uh, the Gmail app on your iPhone 10. And then it says, please check that message to continue. And what you effectively see there is you see a notification on your phone from Gmail, which says, is it you trying to log in? And all you do is tap that notification and say, yes, it's me in the Gmail app. And then that sends a signal back to the browser you're on and that continues to log in there. So you don't actually have to type in any code. You just have to be able to authenticate to the phone and then say, yes, it's me. And that lets you into your Google account. So Gmail on... The desk on iOS is something that I, I would definitely recommend people have. You may not like it enough to make it your number one email client. I personally do because I find it to be very responsive and also supports push notifications from Gmail. But it, in terms of being able to search all of your email, I think it's invaluable just as a thing to have on iOS at some point, just so that you can get that feature. Okay, let's talk Google Drive. Now, for me, as, as a teacher, as a school administrator, uh, Google Drive has become, you know, it came from uh, a, a sort of a rumor that Google might one day have this kind of Dropbox competitor feature to being uh, the absolute bedrock of our entire professional workflow at school. Uh, I couldn't, I can't say enough good things about Google Drive. It's, I, I live in it, basically. And it has dramatically simplified our lives. I, I can't tell you the number of you know file operations we used to have where you know when it's report card day for example what we used to do is uh, everybody would write their own report cards they would give them all to the secretary and then the secretary would spend literally a day and a half 
assembling all the report cards I had to go out by putting, you know, here's a pile for people A, here's a pile for people B, and putting all the reports in the same way. And now what we do is we create one Google Doc per pupil. Everybody writes their reports into that one document. I print them all off, and we're done in 15 minutes. That's the kind of thing that we've got with Google Drive, and it's wonderful. The Google Drive app on iOS has, I would say, gone from strength to strength. It's, it's now a pretty capable file browser, and it has a lot of reasonably powerful features. You can get all your work done in Google Drive on iOS, I would say. There's very little that you can do in Google Drive that you can't somehow get done through the iOS app. The one place I have found it lacking in recent years, though, uh, is since the introduction of files in, when was that, iOS 11? Um, the Google extension for files, the plugin for files that lets you browse your Google Drive inside files has been terrible for quite a long time. I, I, it still has a number of issues, but I would say it at least doesn't crash as much as it used to. Uh, in, in the early to medium days of iOS 11, there were issues like if you went into your Google Drive and you browsed a couple of folders, it would eventually say uh, a message to the effect that the plugin had crashed and you couldn't continue anymore. I haven't seen that in a while, but it still does have some strange things. Like, for example, when you look at a file full of folders, every folder says one item and Google the Google extension won't fetch the item count until you browse into that folder. That's the kind of thing that when you whenever you get a product like files, it tries to uh, smooth out all the differences between different network file systems. I mean, we've been trying to smooth out all the differences between network resources and computing for about 40 years now. And I don't know that we've managed it yet. And uh, certainly Apple Files hasn't achieve that either but you sometimes see these odd wrinkles like it's too expensive for google to go and fetch all those item counts so they just say one and so on and so on the other thing i would say about google drive is that the the share extension works very well so if you have a file say you're looking at a pdf in safari and you want to save that to google drive that works really well you're you're working on a pdf uh, you're working on a document in pages you want to save a pdf version to google drive you can share it, choose PDF, and choose a Google Drive extension, and it'll get there, no bother. So in that sense, the, the Google Drive app is pretty good. And even downloading and opening apps, sorry, opening files and other apps on iOS does seem to work quite well too. It's a, a pretty reasonable workflow all in all. And of course, there are some applications, say PDF Expert, for example, that will let you log into your Google Drive and manipulate files on Google Drive through that third-party apps interface as well. So you've got that option too. I would, I would say, obviously, Dropbox has kind of a long history of being the de facto network file system in iOS, but Google Drive is certainly catching up there. And you can see in many different applications, Notability, PDF Expert, and so on, they actually have native Google Drive integration as well alongside Dropbox. Now, let's talk about the big three, because in in the world of Google Drive, I mean, storing files on the internet is, is you know, a perfectly normal thing to do these days, and Google Drive works perfectly well. But I would say that, you know, the, the real party piece of the whole G Suite product is Google Docs, Google Sheets, and Google Slides. These three web-based, primarily web-based applications that purport to replace Microsoft Word and Excel and PowerPoint as the three mainstays of document productivity, document-based productivity in businesses. Now, I am 
absolutely devoted to these products. Uh, as as I've mentioned before, they have simplified our lives so dramatically when working together as teachers that uh, we couldn't possibly give them up. They're, they're far too embedded in what we do now. Um, but the question sort of becomes, well, <laughs> certainly for us in school, is Google Drive and Google Docs and Slides and Sheets more important to us than iOS? If there was to be a conflict there between using iOS or having to accept limitations in our G Suite, which one would we choose? And I would say we were we are right in the fork of that question right now because for the past couple of years, I would say, Google Docs, Google Sheets and Google Slides, the iOS apps, I'm specifically referring to their existence as the three apps you can download from the App Store, they are workable in iOS, but they are nothing like as good as they are on the desktop. And I'll explain what I mean by that in that, yes, you can open a Google Doc on iOS, and yes, you can multitask, you can collaborate with people live on iOS, right? So you can have two people and two phones two iPads somewhere in the world, they're both working on the same document. And you do get that part of the experience. And that is the party piece for Google Docs, that two people can, or more than two people, can be in the same document at once and they can all be editing the document and you never get an edit conflict. And frankly, there's no other platform that does that really. Apple's getting there a little bit, Microsoft's trying it too. But I mean, Google Docs had that nailed for five years now, more, 10, I'm not sure, but certainly a very long time. The source of frustration for me as somebody who builds increasingly complex and long documents in Google Docs, and I have spreadsheets in Google Sheets that are bordering on sentient in the, in the level of complexity that they have. Uh, we have one at school which uh, uh, we do the school timetable on it, and then from that one sheet, it generates all the pupil timetables and all the teacher timetables. It is... I can't actually remember how it works anymore, so I just have to replace cells very carefully. But these long and complex documents, they, they do not work very well on iOS at all. And in particular, Google Sheets, we found that it is, uh, the, the Google iOS app is quite buggy. And in all cases, they are much less reliable and much less full-featured than their online equivalents. So what that means is that there are, there are things you can do in, say, Google Docs on the web that you just can't do in the iOS app. Uh, and that's frustrating. You know, it's, it, it's actually forced me back to the Mac for a lot of my kind of daily work because I'm now increasingly working on more complex documents and more complex spreadsheets. And that's where... Um, the iOS app is great for doing things like filling in. You know, we, we actually take our school register as a Google Sheet. It's great for filling in that kind of stuff, but it's not great for building from scratch or modifying very complex documents. Uh, and that's something that I think there's two ways this could be fixed, right? One is that Google could make their apps much better. That And to be fair to them, they are frequently updating these applications. It's not like they're stagnant. They don't just get one up, update a year you know, it's not untrue to say that Google updates these three apps more often than Apple updates Pages, Keynote, and Numbers. That's certainly true. But features come to the web version and some of those features never come to the iOS apps. And, you know, it, it is what it is. 
But really and truly, what I would really like to see is I would like to see somehow Apple and Google work together to fix Safari on iOS so that I don't need these apps anymore. And that I, what I want to do is I want to open up Safari and I want to hit Google Docs the same way that I hit it on a Mac, the same way that I hit it on a Chromebook. I've recently been having a look at the Acer Chromebook Tab 10, which is a, a, a 9.7-inch tablet, essentially, that runs Chrome OS. And that thing, which is way slower than the iPad, way slower than, you know, uh, even the lowest-end iPad today, that thing, you can open up Chrome and you can go in Google Docs and it works just fine. So, you know, I don't know that it's Apple's fault that that's not possible, but I would strongly suggest that it is their problem. And I think that's something that in iOS 13 and beyond, we could really hope to see uh, quite a lot of improvement on. So that's enough to, to say about Google Docs, Sheets and Slides. I have moved all of my work over to these. The last one to come along was Google Slides, and it was really weak for a long time. It was a weak product on the web as well for a long time, but it was also weak in iOS. But one thing won me over, and I just dropped this hint in because there may be people out there who could use this, but there is an amazing feature on Google Slides called Audience Q&A. And what this is, is when you, if you start a Q&A session as you present, what you can do is uh, you'll, you'll see your slides on the main screen and then uh, uh, there'll be a banner above the top of the slide that says ask a question at and there's a short uh, Google URL there that users can type in on their phone or on their tablet and they're presented with a question interface on their device and you as the presenter they can ask questions as you're talking and then you as a presenter can see a list of the questions that are coming in and if you want to, and this is what I do in the classroom, I will use that and I will um, cut away. You can cut away from the slides to the questions. The question comes up big on the screen. You can answer that question and then you can go back to whatever part of the presentation you're doing. Of course, you can always leave them all to the end as well. That's another way you could work with that. But it's um, it's certainly, a, I found it to be very powerful in the classroom and, and I've used it to elicit, you know, I had a class where, Traditionally, nobody would ask a question ever. <laughs> and uh, once I started using Google Slides and Q&A, I was generating between 25 and 40 really high quality questions in the course of a lesson that lasted about 45 to 50 minutes. So that was a uh, that was a kind of turning point for me with Google Slides. I thought, okay, it's not as beautiful as Keynote. There's no doubt about that. But man, this feature really has unlocked something special in the classroom. And that's uh, that's what took me over to Google Slides as well. Okay, uh, let's talk Google Calendar. Uh, and I think Google Calendar is uh, a rather underappreciated app on iOS because it has some very interesting features. Google Calendar does the basics on iOS just fine. You can create new uh, create new appointments. You can you know set all the parameters you'd normally set, location, all that stuff, repeats, reminders, everything. But there's an additional feature on the iOS app, which I think is fascinating. It's called goals. And what you do is you specify what it is you want to achieve. And there are some categories for this, things like exercising, building a skill, friends and family, me time, organize my life. These are actually the names of these different categories you can choose. So you pick one of these and then you say, how often do you want to do this thing? So let's say you wanted to learn French. You would say, I want to build a skill and I want to practice it two times a week. And Google Calendar then automatically analyzes your calendar 
and schedules blocks of time for you to do that thing. Uh, so they'll pop up in your calendar at points that you would otherwise be free. Uh, and it will ask you for your preference for morning, afternoon or evening as well. And Google Calendar will give you a reminder before your slot and a reminder after. And the after reminder asks you to check whether or not you did it. And if you say yes, that's fine. But if you say no, Calendar will automatically reschedule that block and learn that you didn't particularly like that time for future suggestions. I just think that's a fascinating and very interesting feature of Google Calendar. And it's it's the kind of thing that you sort of feel, you look at Calendar and iOS, you know, I I love Calendar and iOS. It's, I use it all the time. But I find that with some of these applications, like Mail, like Calendar, like Reminders uh, on iOS, Apple hasn't really added a new feature to these products in a very long time. I mean, I remember <laughs> the excitement, you know, I was so young back then that I was excited about using a calendar instead of dreading what might be appearing on it. But I remember when iCal 1.0, when Steve Jobs introduced iCal 1.0 and how excited I was at that. I thought, that's a cool app. It's, it's look at all these multiple calendars and the beautiful blobs and all this stuff. And now, now that I'm an old person and I use a calendar and I... Uh, uh, in, a, in a way, my life is driven by that calendar. I feel like, you know, in all that time since Apple introduced iCal 1.0, which I think at this point must be about 16 years ago, there has been essentially one innovative feature being added to that. And that feature is uh, being able to put a location onto an event and then get an alert based on travel time to get you to that next event on time. That's kind of it. You know, if you if you were to sit down somebody who has only ever used iOS 11 at an instance of iCal 1.0, they would be absolutely perfectly at home. There's there's essentially no difference between those applications, and it's kind of it's one of these things with Google Calendar. I thought, well, you know, there's an interesting idea, you know, and and now in G Suite you're getting things like. Um, Google Calendar can suggest, when you're trying to make a meeting with somebody, it can suggest which room, if you have rooms set up in your business, uh, which room that you should meet in. And it'll look at the room allocation and see what's free as well. So stuff like that, I'm like, mm, that's that's pretty interesting. So Google Calendar and iOS, pretty, pretty good application. Let me pause for a moment and talk about our sponsor for this show. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. If your website was down right now, if visitors couldn't access your content or couldn't click that all-important buy now button, how would you know? You wouldn't until it was too late. And that's why you need Pingdom. They give you the peace of mind you need. Pingdom will let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you. They're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database or website will be a breeze. They use more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. So start monitoring your website today. All Pingdom needs is the URL and they take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and really FM. Now, 
I want to dig into some other applications that maybe are not as well known in the world of iOS users. I want to talk first of all about Google Keep. Now, Google Keep is essentially their Apple Notes competitor, and it's much more featureful than I expected. And it's much more featureful than it first appears. Now, it does not do the same things as Notes on iOS, but they are essentially covering much of the same ground. Keep supports, essentially, it talks about two different kinds of content. It talks about notes and reminders. And in, in the world of Google Keep, a reminder is just a note with a date, time, and a done status associated with it. So you can say, uh, this note, this reminder is due at this time, and then you can tick it off when it's done. The actual note taking in Keep is very basic. So if you're talk if you're thinking about using Google Keep as a place to write a lot of style text and structured documents, not really. Okay, it all you're allowed is plain text and bullet points, and that is literally it. There's not even bold, italic, or underline. Never mind the kind of things like numbered lists and headings and titles uh, that you can do in Apple Notes. That none of that's possible. Keep does support images and sketching. And what you can do is you can sketch with a pen, a marker, and a highlighter tool with a choice of size and colors. And you can also mark up images in Google Keep. But these aren't stored in line in the note and they're sort of presented on iOS like attachments. So it's not quite the same kind of thing that you see in later, more recent releases of Apple Notes. I want you to kind of wind your mind back to like Apple Notes of maybe iOS 7, 8 kind of era, that kind of basic level. But there is one kind of amazing feature in Google Keep, and it's called Grab Image Text. And what you can do with this is in, in Google Keep Note, you can go to the camera and take a photograph of a document, let's say. And once it has synced up to Google's cloud, it will be OCR'd, that is optical character recognition, will be applied to it. And when that's been done, you can copy the image text and all the text that can be detected anywhere in the image uh, will be inserted into the note. And as you might imagine with Google, this is, this is the kind of thing that's right in Google's wheelhouse and it works extremely well. If you need to get an editable version of text, one of the best ways I know of in iOS to do it is to take a photograph in Google Keep and grab that image text into a note. It's really, really, really good. Google Keep also supports text dictation, which is using Google's text dictation engine, not Apple's. So this is similar to what you can do if you've used Google Docs on the web, on, and also not only just on the web, but using Chrome on the web, you can actually dictate into a Google document on the web. That works really well if you're on a desktop computer, but in, Notes, in, in, sorry, in Google Keep, you can dictate using that uh, text, that dictation engine as well. What happens after you've dictated is that uh, Google Keep will keep your uh, audio as an attachment to the note, and it will also put that text into the note. One of the things you cannot do with Google Keep is you cannot attach arbitrary files in the way you can on Apple Notes. So uh, one of the features we've used in our family is um, creating a note for, say, a trip that we're going on. And what I would do is if we ever did a hotel booking or tickets for an event, 
the PDFs for all of that would go straight into that shared note. Same with things like locations, like Apple Maps locations for places that were going to the hotel and the, the venue and so on. None of that's really possible in Google Keep, so it's just something to be aware of. You can make a checklist in Google Keep, uh, but unlike Apple Notes where you can have a checklist and other text, what happens is it's basically a big sort of Frankenstein switch on Google Keep. So you say, okay, this note is a checklist. The whole note becomes a checklist or it's not a checklist and the whole note becomes a normal text note as well. You can't interleave checkboxes and other content as you can on Apple Notes. But what you can do is you can collaborate on Google Keep Notes just in the same way you can with Google Docs. And you can also upgrade a Google Keep Note to a Google Doc with a click. So you can work away in Keep with your notes and then you can upgrade it into a Google Doc and you're off to the races with everything you can do in Google Docs as well. Unlike Apple Notes, there's a, which has a folder model, Google Keep has more of a Gmail style labeling and archiving system. So you have this kind of body of notes that's your, your main set of notes. And when you're done with a note, you can archive it into the archive and search it, of course, because it's Google, right? Um, there's also, uh, what else have we got? There's a share extension for iOS that lets you create and label notes from other apps. So if you have labels that you put on stuff, uh, you can do that from the share sheet extension. Um, but you can't, you can't, you can only send text into that basically you can't in notes you can do that with you know map locations and pdfs and stuff none of that and keep it's just you know i want to write some text and if you're looking at it in safari for example what you'll get is you'll get the text of the url in there google keep does support similarly to apple notes creating a rich preview of a url but you have to turn that on and it's not on by default so you have to uh, go into the settings and turn that on there would I say Google Keep is as good as Apple Notes? No, it's definitely not. But if you, for example, have a security model where you want to keep everything inside your G Suite for organizational reasons, it's a workable version of note-taking. I would like it to have much um, better rich tech support, for example. So I would like to be able to make things bold and put in italics and things like that. But in general, it's, it's not a bad place to make basic notes. Now, a more recent iOS app that has come out is called Google Tasks. Now, Google has supported to-dos in various places through their system for quite a long time, but um, Google Tasks is a relatively new uh, standalone branding for this capability. And it, it sort of came to prominence in my thinking when the recent uh, Gmail redesign was done for the web. And what you now have in the right-hand sidebar in Gmail and the web is uh, your Google Calendar, Google Keep, and Google Tasks. And one of the nice things you can do is you can just drag on your desktop uh, an email from Gmail into that sidebar to turn it into a task, for example. So that, that's a nice level of integration. But I have to be absolutely honest with you and say that compared to almost anything you could pick up on iOS, um, even compared to reminders on iOS, Google Tasks is a very weak to-do manager. And I would say if, if any of you have been alive long enough and remember uh, the list manager on a Pam Pilot, and I'm really dating myself with this one, but uh, if you remember the list program on Pam Pilots, that 
is essentially about the level of power that you get with Google Tasks. Um, it has uh, it supports multiple lists of tasks, so you can have you know list A, list B, list C, and inside there you can have uh, individual tasks. A task can also have subtasks, uh, and you can have uh, due dates associated with those tasks, but um, there's no concept like an omnifocus of projects. There are no, uh, there are absolutely no repeat options whatsoever, uh, which I think is quite an interesting idea. You know, many people have, uh, many people have spent a long time in omnifocus, for example, putting in detailed repeats and so on. I bet you, if you ask somebody at Google, they would say, "Well, recurring things go on your calendar." Right? If they're, you know, that, that's an argument to be made, but it's not. Uh, I wouldn't say it was a compelling argument, but it is an argument that can be made. And I would say that perhaps the main advantage to tasks is that it's integrated into Gmail so that you can at least create on the desktop these um, these links, uh, cross-linking between tasks and emails. Now, those links will actually survive being synced to iOS. So you can do that and you can tap on them in iOS and it'll launch the Gmail app and show you the email. But I cannot find at the moment any way to create these on iOS. So there's not a lot of integration between the iOS Gmail app and the iOS Google Tasks app. They kind of live in separate worlds. But if you work between a Mac and an iOS device, then uh, you can create these things on your desktop and they're usable on iOS. Um, yeah, that is, you know, that is sort of a sign of its lack of capabilities that that's all there is to say about Google Tasks. I mean, uh, if you read David Allen's Getting Things Done book, for example, if, you, if you're a devotee of that system, as I have been at various times in my life, David Allen would absolutely say that you could implement GTD in Google Tasks because all you need are lists of lists and the rest of GTD is really about your behavior, not about... Uh, fancy software features, for example. But honestly, tasks pretty weak. There's not even a share sheet action for Google Tasks. So on iOS, you can't actually share something into a task the way you can with OmniFocus or Reminders and so on. So it's, it is, to be fair, it's, a, it's probably the youngest of all the Google apps on iOS as far as I know. Um, so it probably needs a bit of time to mature. But like I said, the number one advantage is that it's integrated with Gmail on the desktop. And if that matters to you, then Tasks is worth taking a look at on iOS. But I can't say that I'm using it as my to-do list manager. It's just a little too weak, even for very, very basic stuff. Now, we've got this far without talking about Google Maps, but we should probably talk about Google Maps because uh, this has been a obviously a source of, you know, quite a lot of controversy between the Apple and Google worlds over recent years is who's got the best maps. And I think my experience in the UK and traveling abroad and so on is that it very much depends where you are, but I don't think it would really be, uh, it's a wee bit like the McDonald's and Burger King situation, right? You go to McDonald's, you never sit there comparing their stuff to Burger King, but you go to Burger King and you sit there and what you do is you talk about whether or not this is good as good as McDonald's. And in this case, Apple is very much Burger King and Google Maps is McDonald's. And I would really say that what I have found is that in the UK in particular, Google Maps is much better at finding uh, points of interest that you maybe cannot 
um, completely specify. So you might know something about its name or something like that, and Google Maps will give you a pretty reasonable estimate of what you were trying to find. Whereas Apple Maps, you need to kind of specify it like to the letter, you know, um, what you're talking about in order to find the thing you're looking for. Again, as with many of these other applications, Google Maps does suffer a little bit from the fact that it's not integrated into the experience like Apple Maps is. And what I mean by that is things like turn-by-turn directions on the Apple Watch or, uh, you know, lighting up the lock screen if if you're navigating with your device locked and things like that. But it's interesting that um, uh, Google Maps is going to be integrated with CarPlay in iOS 12. And I think it's... uh, uh, it's interesting that Apple's opening that up to third-party maps, and I would like to see them open up a little bit more. Personally, I like Google Maps. I slightly prefer it to Apple Maps uh, for the reason that if I'm looking for a restaurant or something, I can be quite vague about it, and Google Maps will usually get it right, whereas with Apple Maps, you've got to be pretty precise about it to get to where you want to go. Uh, I haven't found Apple Maps to be terrible in the UK. I think in in most of the places I go, it seems fine, but it just has this kind of pedantic way of wanting you to specify where you want to go, whereas Google Maps, you can be pretty sloppy and you can still get to uh, most things you want to get to. One other tool that we use in school that many people probably don't use very much is Google Hangouts Chat. Now, let's just admit right now that Google's video conferencing and messaging system and strategy has been pretty confused for quite a long time. But you've got Google Hangouts and you've got Hangouts Chat and all these things. But Hangouts Chat is essentially Google's Slack competitor, right? Slack has, I mean, everybody knows what Slack is, but both Google and Microsoft have been trying to take out Slack recently. And Microsoft is a product called Microsoft Teams and Google's competitor is called Google Hangouts Chat. And if you could imagine a version of Slack with all the fun taken out of it, that is pretty much what Google Hangouts chat is. Um, we use it in school because it gives us um, it gives us a sort of instant messaging capability that is under the same uh, security system and identity system as our email is, for example, and also integrates with Google Vault for uh, data retention and things like that. So that's why we use Google Hangouts chat. But... Um, I would have to say it is a wee bit like Google Tasks in that it's quite early days um, and there's a lot that it can't do. For example, it only just got the feature where if you message somebody an image, they can save it to their camera roll, for example, and it started out without some of those features. So it was quite quite bare, but uh, it, it does a job of work and I think, uh, you know, a year or so's iteration, I think it will be, it'll be pretty good. Google Photos. Well, Google Photos is an interesting one because for for long and weary, we've had this this issue with Apple where they only give most people, everybody five gigabytes of iCloud space and that really isn't quite enough. And what I have done with Google Photos personally is I'm using it more as a, as a parallel form of backup for my photos, but it's definitely a secondary place for photos. And I'm not turning off iCloud Photo Library anytime soon. Again, and as always with many of these things, 
the limitation of Google Photos is that it can't do things like feed the photo picker that's used everywhere on iOS. So if you're in Keynote and you want to insert an image, the source for those images is going to be your camera roll on the device. Whereas if all your photos are in Google Photos, it's going to be a bit of an operation to get that into Keynote, for example. So it's not something that I would say is a primary feature for me. I haven't found its assistant to be particularly interesting or fun. It's okay, but not really much better or different from uh, what you can do in Photos and iOS these days. I would say perhaps uh, sort of concept searching is better on Google Photos and that you can search for things in the image and it will often hit what you're looking for. But um, personally, you know, I, I don't find it uh, the most compelling thing uh, in the Google suite. I think there are other things that are more important. We can't really talk about Google apps on iOS without talking about YouTube. And I would be very interested to know whether or not YouTube might be the most trafficked Google product on iOS. I suspect it probably is by some quite significant distance. I would say that for me, on my phone, YouTube is probably my number two most used app after Overcast and maybe Messages. So somewhere in, in the top three. Um, I've said before, and I'll say again, that I think YouTube is the most important website in the world, bar none, and that includes Wikipedia. Uh, the, the amount of formal and informal learning that can happen through YouTube to my teacher's brain is uh, is beyond belief. I think it's... Uh, it's a treasure, you know, the likes of which we have probably not had in the world since the Library of Alexandria, and I mean that quite sincerely. Um, it's, a, it's a real Gutenberg revolution, I would say, YouTube. And the app, YouTube, the app is extremely powerful now. And in many countries in the world, including the UK, we recently got YouTube Premium uh, unleashed, which is, uh, that is what used to be called YouTube Red, in the United States. And that unlocks a couple of features that are very interesting for iOS users. And the main ones are that you can now download videos for offline playback, and you can also uh, continue playback in the background when you lock your device. These are, are two features that I, I think I've certainly wanted a lot from YouTube in the past and have occasionally devised pretty elaborate workarounds to get those kind of capabilities. Um, I have found since I started using YouTube Premium that I have listened to more audio content on YouTube than I have listened to podcasts in that period. So that's quite an interesting thing. And I'm big into podcasts. Obviously, I do my own show and also listen to quite a lot of others. But I found that there's a wealth of uh, spoken content, interviews, lectures, different things on YouTube that are extremely compelling to listen to and, and very uh, very enjoyable. So YouTube Premium is an interesting one. It's not cheap. I, I think it's it's right on that boundary of, uh, I don't really want to pay that much, but okay, you know, which suggests that they've probably priced it about right. But um, I think it's going to be uh, a very interesting product. And of course, there's now this other app called YT Music or YouTube Music, which is uh, is essentially, it comes along with the YouTube Premium subscription but it's essentially a music player focused on stuff that you can find on YouTube, but it plays it um, uh, as audio rather than as video. So it's more it's more like an Apple Music or a Spotify in that sense. Let me just wrap up with a couple of other little bits and pieces. I have played with Google Assistant 
on iOS. And it's not something that I, I'm not hugely into voice computing. I, I like to, you know, strangely for a podcast host, I don't like to uh, talk to my computer too much. I'm talking to my computer now. It feels a bit weird and uh, not having Federico with me, but I'm not hugely into voice computing, but Google Assistant is fun, uh, but it really suffers from that lack of integration. You can't use it with the home button. You can't use it in your car with CarPlay. You can't give it the wake word. Uh, none of that works. Unless the app is open, you can use the wake word then. But what I found uh, personally is that it is a little better than Siri for me in some respects. In particular, the voice recognition is a bit more accurate. Uh, in general speech, it's about the same as Siri, but what I find with Google Assistant is that it's much better on specific technical terms and proper nouns. And for example, I was away on holiday recently and the local cinema was at a, a, a kind of local visitor centre called the Reged Centre, and that's spelled R-H-E-G-E-D. Uh, and Surrey has no hope of getting that right. Uh, with the word in particular and then my accent on top of it, no chance. But I was able to say to the Google Assistant, what's playing, there's a cinema there, what's playing at the Reged Centre? And it got it perfectly. And that's the kind of thing, That's to me, that's where Google is a step ahead of Apple and those kind of things. It's not that, you know, what's playing at the... Google Assistant, Siri, perfectly good at both of those. But when you get to the technical words, the local words, the the hard to pronounce words, the ones that are hard to disambiguate from other words, I really feel like Google has a, a strong edge on that. And the second thing I found with the Google Assistant is that it knows about more things. So in, in, with Siri, you can ask it some things and, and it knows about certain structured information. So you can say to Siri, um, you know, what was the Manchester United score last week? And it will tell you because it knows about the English Premier League. But you can't ask it when the Super Rugby final is going to be played because it doesn't know anything about rugby. Uh, but you can say to Google Assistant, when is the Super Rugby final? And it will give you a structured answer. And it will say, uh, the Crusaders are playing the Lions on Saturday the 4th of August at 8.35am. It will also localise it to my time zone because that's actually being played in New Zealand. That's great. Uh, and, and to me, that's the other edge for Google Assistant is that it knows about more things. Uh, and can give you a useful kind of structured answer where Siri tends to fall back to, here's what I found on the web about this thing I don't know anything about. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. Again, though, hobbled by a lack of deep integration to iOS. Do I use Google Assistant every day? Is it in my dock? No. But it's occasionally an interesting thing to play a bit with to compare with Siri. The last thing I have only recently started using is uh, the Google Gboard keyboard. Now I know Mike, uh, Mike Hurley from this network is a huge fan of the Gboard. Um, and I think it's been interesting to follow the development of third-party keyboards on iOS since they were introduced back in, what was that, iOS 8, iOS 9, somewhere around that time. And uh, do you remember the days when this was like a huge thing, a massive knock against iOS was that you had to use the Apple keyboard? And there wasn't a set of a uh, wide range of third-party keyboards that could apparently do all these amazing things that could be done with keyboards on Android. How many third-party keyboards do we have on iOS that are actually serious keyboards today? I would suggest probably Gboard and Air, that's it. So many of the third-party keyboards 
are basically used to make your iOS look a little bit like a Linux window manager from the 1990s. They're not, um, <laughs> they're not aesthetically pleasing. In fact, they're mostly appalling. Um, I have serious questions about some of their functionality. Not that convinced about some of their security either, but whatever. Um, but the, the Gboard keyboard is perhaps the only serious competitor to Apple's native keyboard. Uh, and it has some particularly interesting features, in, in, and the first one of which is uh, something that is seems to be beloved on the Android side of the world, but uh, has never been a feature of iOS, and that is swipe typing. Now, I, I find this incredibly hard to get used to. I, uh, I've been using it for about three weeks now, and... I feel really slow at it, really slow, but a lot of people see, do tend to love that kind of feature. Of course, it's Google. It's Google's keyboard. There's a whole bunch of search built in. So you can search for images, you can search for GIFs, and you can copy and paste them into the stuff you're typing. You can even search YouTube right from the keyboard and insert a link to a YouTube video. You can do the same thing for maps. It's it's all in the keyboard, and it's, and it's very, very cool, to be honest with you. There's a lot of capability there. It also has a way to use the Google Voice Recognition technology. And this is interesting because I mentioned earlier that that's built into Google Keep, but it's not built into any of the other Google apps, such as Docs. The way this works is they've overridden the uh, a long hold on the space bar. And what happens here is that once you OK it, you swap into the app that delivers the keyword and you dictate there. And when you're done, it's sent back to the original app and pasted in for you. Uh, and that's that's an interesting way to do it. It's um, you can sort of, There are certain limitations to the keyboard. Apple puts a lot of restrictions on what you can do in a keyboard. And obviously, like, it's a keyboard. You don't want to embed full, <laughs> full apps inside the keyboard. But um, that seems to work quite well too. And like I've said before, I, I personally find the, uh, the Google Voice Recognition technology to be uh, quite accurate for for my voice and my accent, which is, uh, if you've ever seen the, the famous sketch on YouTube about the two Scottish guys in a lift trying to use voice recognition technology to get it to floor 11, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. I invite you to search uh, Scottish Elevator 11 on YouTube and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That is a Scots life when talking to voice recognition technology. Um, so, yeah. I've, I find the Gboard to be interesting. I've, I've stuck with it for these three weeks. I can't say that um, I don't feel faster with the swipe typing just yet, but who knows, it might become something that I, uh, I become deeply attached to and can't get rid of in the future. Now, Google, this has been a, you know, we've been talking for nearly an hour here. Google publishes many, many more applications than this on uh, iOS. I, I think the last time I counted it, which was a couple of weeks ago, Google had something like 50 different applications on iOS. And that includes things like the YouTube Creator Studio app, there's a Google AdWords app, there's a thing called Smart Lock, which is for their hardware-based two-factor authentication for your account, all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of Google apps on iOS. Um, and but what I've tried to do here is kind of talk about the ones that I think are, are kind of part of the core productivity toolkit for living the Google lifestyle on iOS. Uh, I would be very interested to hear your feedback on this. If you find other ways, uh, sometimes there might be third-party applications that work well with some of these services, I'd be very interested to hear it. But this has been Canvas episode 66, living the Google lifestyle on iOS.
You can interact with the show on Twitter. The show is underscore Canvas FM. On Twitter, I am Freezer Spears. Federico is Vitici. And we'll be back with you next show.